Well, last week, we started a new series in Exodus. And the way we've been going through this series uh, is through a story form. Last week, we focused on looking at how God is preparing the rescue. This week, we're looking at Exodus chapter 2 through the lens of how God is preparing a hero. And so naturally, as we look at a, a narrative in God's word, we are sticking with this understanding of following a story and how God is sovereignly preparing the rescue of his people, but also how he is preparing a hero for this ultimate rescue. So today we're looking at the hero. Who is he? How is he prepared? And things of that nature. Well, it was ruined for us a little bit, but we have uh, a picture. I, I rarely use a picture, something as cool as an Instagram picture at that. But, so I wish it wasn't ruined, but you know, I, I hopefully, hopefully the opening illustration still is good. Uh, if you don't know what this is, I didn't know what it is. Uh, for me, if you know me at all, I love sports, I love playing. I don't follow any sports. For some reason, following statistics and placements and all that, it feels like an academic endeavor, so I don't, I don't do it. But I, I, I listened up to a podcast that mentioned this, so I'm going to give you guys the rundown of that in case you don't know. This is Joel Embiid, and this is his Instagram photo. He posted this July 23rd, 2016, and the man in the middle is someone very significant. He is, uh, his name is Sam Henke. He was the former... We'll come back to that. The former Sixers GM. But he was the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers. It's a basketball team, just to clarify which sports we're in. And Joel Embiid, a basketball player for the 76ers, posted this photo with Sam Henke in it, and he says this in his caption, the GOAT, which stands for the greatest of all time, the GOAT, referring to Sam Hinkie, he's the greatest of all time. Hashtag, he died for our sins. Hashtag, trust the process. Now, you already know, that gets me excited because in there is loaded with a lot of biblical things I can use. But he posts this picture up because of the significance of Sam Hinkie's contribution or some would say lack thereof of the 76ers. So Sam Hinkie, as a general manager, had this idea that in order to make the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team great again, that he would, in essence, tank the team. That he was going to do all that he could to make this team the worst possible team. And the person on the podcast mentioned that he said, any player that showed any type of functional talent as a basketball player, they traded away. The idea was, if you can make your team so bad Eventually, after a couple years, you will get a, a, a prized pick during the draft so you can rebuild the team. And, and a famous thing that Sam Hinkie often said was that this, this whole thing is a, is a process and that you have to trust it. Later, being coined as trust the process. Now, this took many years, and the fans started to get fed up. The fans got upset, and they didn't believe, they didn't trust, they criticized, and they eventually mutinied. But during this process, unbeknownst to Sam Hinkie nor any of the 76ers fan, a young man, Joel Embiid, a seven-foot kid from Cameroon in Central Africa, 
comes to America, attends the Rock School, a Christian academy in, Great, in Gainesville, Florida. As a senior, he leads his high school basketball team to a 33 winning and four loss record to the state championship. They said that Joel Embiid in some ways was a basketball prodigy. Coming over to the States in high school, he could, as a seven-footer, shoot three-pointers, dunk, pass. He was agile. He was witty. He was smart. He knew the game. But Sam Henke and the rest of the fan, as they were waiting for this process to unfold, they, they weren't aware that young Joel Embiid was being raised up as the hero of the 76ers. So with the third-round overall pick, in the NBA, the 76ers took Joel Embiid. And people thought perhaps this could be it. This was the fruition of the process. But he was injured and he didn't play the first two seasons. People were upset. And they ultimately got rid of Sam Hinkie. So after a while, Joel Embiid puts this picture up with him and Sam Hinkie right there in the middle. And he said that he is the greatest of all time that he died for the sins of the 76ers fans who criticized him, and actually that he had a plan all along, and that if the fans were to trust the process, they would have seen the Sixers now ushered into a new era for possible greatness. Now, I love the 76ers just because I'm from Philly, but if they win or lose, I'm not, I'm not gonna lose sleep. Now, this illustration doesn't exactly transition over tick for tack, but I think it primes us for all the necessary components we need to understand on what is going on in chapter two of Exodus as God is preparing a hero, as we trust his process of bringing rescue for his people. And the point today is something that we left off on last week is this Exodus 2, 24 to 25. It's on the screen. Read it with me. It says, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is important because in the midst of chapter 1 and our understanding of what's going on, Israelite people being under oppression in Egypt, we are being told in the midst of all this, in case you doubt the process, in case You've lost hope. In case there's any doubt on how the story is going to turn up, we're reminded here at the last section of chapter 2 that God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. If there's any doubt, we're reminded that the creator God, he hears his people when they suffer. He remembers his covenant and his promise that he makes with his people. He sees their suffering, and he knows where they are. And so we're going to look at two points, how God preserves a hero and how God prepares a hero. So the first point, I want to look at verses 1 through 10 as we look at the birth of Moses. Again, the context is that the Israelite people are under oppression, it's been 400 years. It doesn't seem too likely that something's going to change because Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, is making life even harder. And after 400 years of this, it doesn't really seem like it's going to just all automatically just get all better. 
But what the birth of Moses here introduced to this sad, oppressive narrative is a birth of a child. Unbeknownst to Pharaoh, unbeknownst to the grand picture at ground level, a Levite man takes a wife and they have a child. During the time where the Pharaoh has decreed that all male children be thrown into the Nile and be killed, they have this child, and when the child is born, the mother of this child looks at the baby, and, and, and we're told that she sees that he is a fine child. Some commentators have noted that this is a similar language of the creation account in Genesis, where God saw that it was good. Some have further noted that, that if Genesis is the, the creation account of God's world, that Exodus is the creation of account of God's people. And so already you start to hear the music and feel the anticipation that something is coming on the scene. A hero is on his way. But after three months, the mother realizes that she can't keep this child a secret anymore for whatever reason. And with heart breaking and tears, I'm sure, with much turmoil, she places her baby in a basket and she leaves him by the reeds the Nile River, not knowing exactly what's going to happen. And we're told that this baby's sister looks to see what's going to happen with my three-month-old brother. We're told that Pharaoh's daughter comes to the river to bathe, and they notice this basket, and they look in, and they see a baby. She realizes it's a Hebrew baby. And right when we're uncertain of what's going to happen, the sister of this baby comes and says, hey, Daughter of Pharaoh, would you like me to go find a Hebrew woman to take care of this child for you and return him to you later? And the Pharaoh's daughter says, yes. So what does the sister of this baby do? She calls back the mother. And we see that the mother of this child gets to nurse and gets to raise up her own child, eventually returning him to Pharaoh's daughter. We see that Pharaoh names him Moses. In Hebrew, the meaning of this name is, is it means to draw out of the water, but in, in, in Egyptian, this name means son. And so some commentators have noted how this is interesting where his name would be Moses, where in Hebrew and even Egyptian, it, it could connote that, that God is drawing his people out of slavery, that, that God is actually going to use this man to bring his people out of slavery. But what's interesting here is we see Pharaoh's plan at work, right? His plan is to get rid of all the male offsprings. Yet we see the plan of God where his plan is to rescue his people. And it's interesting that everything Pharaoh tries to do is now being used against him as God raises up for himself a champion for his people. Think about it. He's trying to get rid of all the sons and the daughters are preserved. Who are the people in this story that are being used by God to preserve the life of this male offspring? Think about the two midwives. Think about Moses' mother, his sister, the daughter of Pharaoh himself. That in the time where Pharaoh thinks he's going to oppress all the male offsprings to ensure his reign, God is using the least likely characters. He's using the women, the daughters, to faithfully carry out his plan. He's using Pharaoh's own daughter 
And to add to that, Moses' mother is even getting wages from Pharaoh's treasury to take care of this son, this hero that will save God's people. And we, and we think and we wonder, what is going on here? And we know this, we know this type of framework. I want to remind us back when we were looking at Genesis Right? What Pharaoh meant for evil, God is using for good. And in Genesis 50, 20, we remember Joseph and his brother. We remember Joseph saying to his brother, you did this out of evil, but God used it for good. It reminds us of Romans 8, 28 again, where all things work together for our good when God is working for us. A couple verses after Romans 8.31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is at work in our story today. And perhaps, whether you know it or not, in the moments of your struggling and your suffering and your doubts, God is also at work. God is at work in ways that you don't know yet, in subtle ways perhaps that you can't even anticipate. God is at work perhaps even against your own plans because he has a better plan for you. We see the sovereignty of God preparing a rescue and preparing a hero for his cause. And through Moses' life, even as a baby, God preserves a helpless child to carry out his plan. If he can use a helpless child to carry out his plan, then he can use, certainly, you and I to carry out his plan. If he preserves even a baby, surely he is a God great enough to preserve you and I. God's plan is at work. God's hero is coming. And we hear the music growing. And we see time lapses of this young man growing to be one who we can see and say, oh, yeah, this is Moses. So point two After God preserves this young baby, God now prepares. If we look through verses 11 through 20, this is what we're told. As the narrative of Moses goes on, we're told that Moses, now about 40 years old, looks upon the land of Egypt and he sees something. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. This upsets him because we're told that Moses, even at this point, identifies himself with the Hebrews. He knows who he is. He knows who his people are. And when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, it upsets him. He looks left, he looks right, sees no one. Kills him, buries him in the sand. Wow, that's pretty gangster, isn't it? (laughs) Moses kills this man, buries him in the sand. Isn't this what we were waiting for? Finally, a hero has come. Moses, the hero, strikes down the Egyptian man who struck his fellow brethren. And we would think, yeah, he's the hero of Israel. He saved this one Hebrew man by killing this Egyptian. But as the story goes on, the next day Moses comes out and he sees two Hebrew people arguing. And he says, why are you guys arguing? And they say, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you intend to do the same thing to us as you did to the Egyptian? And Moses gets scared. We thought he was a hero. Moses says, the thing I've done is, is, good, is, is known. And when Pharaoh hears of it, he seeks to kill Moses. Moses runs away. 
right at the moment where we thought, yeah, this is what we were waiting for. He's 40 years old. He's at his prime. His shoulder strength has come in. He's got the grown man strength. Now Moses is the hero. After taking down this one Egyptian, everyone is going to follow. Moses, Moses, let's go. Let's take over the Egyptian. Let's do this. God is preparing a rescue. You're our hero. Let's go. But this doesn't happen. <laughs> Even at 40 years of age, Moses now flees into the wilderness in Midian. He rests at a well, and we're told that daughters of a Midian priest come to water at the well, and these so-called shepherds chase them away. They don't allow it. And so Moses stands up, and he takes care of it. And he takes care of these daughters. He waters for them. And then he's brought back to this Midian man's home, where he eventually takes one of his daughters as his wife. Now, chapter 2 is almost at its conclusion. And as we leave today, the, the thinking is, well, I thought God was preparing a hero. Why is he stuck in the desert for another 40 years? What's happening? What is God doing? How is this a preparation? How is God preparing Moses? We look, at, we look back at the account where Moses kills this one man, and we think, you know, that could have been it. That could have been the moment of revolution. Yet at the same time, we see that God is not, he didn't preserve Moses just to be the hero and savior of one Israelite. God preserved Moses to be the hero of all the Israelites, that he was going to be a hero for God's use to not just save one person during a time of argument, but he was going to be used as a hero to save the whole people in a time of oppression. And we see Moses here sitting 40 years in the land of Midian being prepared as a hero. Now a lot of us, as we look back in our seasons, some of you guys have experienced time in the wilderness yourself as God is preparing you to be a faithful servant. Some of you guys are in that season of wilderness where you feel the heat of the sun, where you feel the ground not being bearing fruit for your labors. And you start to wonder, what is God doing? Does he have a plan? And I want to encourage and challenge you today that if you feel indeed that you are in a wilderness season, don't miss what the Lord is doing in your life, how he's growing you, challenging you, revealing your weaknesses. There's no place like the wilderness to see areas you need to be sanctified in. So we see Moses here, our hero, after being preserved, sent into the wilderness to be prepared. As he chased away these so-called shepherds, he will spend the next 40 years of his life learning what it means to be a true shepherd. Now, it seems during these next 40 years that, that no other Egyptian, no other Hebrew, no other Midianite probably thought that God was at work and that Moses was still going to be the chosen hero that will deliver his people. But it is. That's exactly what the Lord is doing. And I want to remind us as we 
remember back to Genesis 15, we, we're told that God is a God who remembers his covenant. This is what he says to Abraham when he first makes his covenant. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God already knows what's going to happen to the Israelites. They're going to be enslaved and oppressed by Egyptians for 400 years. But God continues. He says this to Abraham. But I will bring judgment on the nation that you serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possession. God, from the beginning of making a covenant with Abraham, says it's going to be rough for 400 years. But I got a plan. I'm going to deliver you. I am preparing a hero for that time of great need. Trust the process. Trust the process, we're told. And I want to encourage you guys that our God is a God who keeps his promises. That he is a God, when he starts something, he will bring it to completion. That he will bring into completion the good works that he has started in you. But let's pause for a second. As we think about God preparing Moses as this hero, we know in the grand scheme of it that there is a bigger hero to come. That the story of Moses, just like our original illustration, was just priming us perhaps, getting us ready with all the necessary components to understand who the true hero is of the huge narrative of God's salvation. That how God just preserved Moses and prepared him as a hero was the similar way that now he preserves Jesus when Harold in the New Testament were told or after all the male offsprings where he makes a decree himself much like Pharaoh to get rid of all the male offsprings. How God preserved this baby in a manger and how he took care of him and how he had a plan to rescue not just people of Israel in the oppression of Egypt but he had a plan to rescue all all his people, you and I included, that God preserved a savior, that he prepared a hero, that Jesus, upon maturing, was baptized, sent into the wilderness himself, faced with temptation but never sinned, so that he would be our hero, who didn't just experience what we would experience, but who conquered what we couldn't conquer. Commentators note how, how Moses is a hero who experiences his, the suffering that his people will ultimately go through. But Jesus experiences a suffering that you and I don't have to taste. We see that in the grand narrative of God preparing a rescue and preparing a hero, that it is no other than Jesus Christ who is the true savior for all God's people, not just an ethnic minority at the time of the Old Testament, but all of God's people whom he has chosen in Jesus Christ before the foundations of the world. That he was preserving him, preparing him to be his ultimate hero, to be the one that you and I would look to. So let me make a, a quick a corrective here because most of the time when we think about the Old Testament stories, when we think about Moses, immediately we go, yes, God is preparing me for greatness. He's preserving me. Right? When the moments where we think about at work and we're just struggling with our coworkers, how many of you guys, by the way, have murderous thoughts about your coworkers? <laughs> not me, not me. <laughs> but by the giggles, 
we can all know sometimes our relationship with our coworkers are so difficult that in our hearts there's such murderous thoughts that sometimes we might look to the left and right and say, you know, if no one's here, I might bury this guy in the sand. And we hear of, we hear of this, this narrative, this, this theme of God preparing, a hero preserving, and when we can easily slip in, into this false understanding of, yeah, God's preparing me for some greatness. All this flack I'm taking at work, all this, all this oppression at school, all these things that are, are, are happening where I'm being mistreated, God's going to put me on top and I'm going to show everyone. And there's this, there's this sense of that, yeah, yeah, he's preparing me. He's preparing me for my own glory in the future. And I want to correct that and say, no. Because the story of Moses, as it ultimately points to Jesus, it points to us in a different way. It reminds us and it tells us that you can't save yourself, that you can't be the hero of your own story, that you're not the master of your own destiny, that if we truly believe in a sovereign God who has preserved a Savior for us, who has prepared a Savior for us, then we ought to then, in humility, look to that Savior, trust in that Savior Desire the victory that he has already achieved for us. God has preserved Jesus and prepared him to be our hero. This is what our Christian faith is about. This is what the gospel and the good news is working towards to get us to see that Jesus is our champion, that he is our hero. And some of us, me included, we need to repent Because if we're honest, in our studies, in our workplaces, in our families, we try to be the hero. I can confess as a guy myself who has some sport background, who who can get lost in in, in being too over-disciplined, well, maybe not in my own life, but projecting it to my family, right? I can say that, yeah, you know what? Sometimes I think I'm my family's savior. Sometimes I think if I can preach a great sermon or lead a great Bible study, I'm going to save some of the things that are going on in our church, and I have to repent. Some of you guys, I want to challenge you right now to think about your workplaces. Have you done and made some maneuvers to try to be your own hero? Yeah, I know there are probably things that are unfair and even unjust that is happening to you. Maybe. But if God is for you, who can be against you? If God can use what people mean for evil and use it for good to grow you, who can be against you? Who can touch you? If people at work, as you climb the corporate ladder, you feel it's just, it's just a rat race and they're just scheming against you to claw over you, no matter what people's intentions are, if God is for you, who can be against you? If the nations rage and plot, if God is for you, who can be against you? So in moments of unfairness, in moments of injustice, you as a Christian standing on the promises of God can say, you know what, you can do whatever you think you gotta do to get on top. But I trust my Lord. And for me, it's not even about getting to the top. It's about growing in Christ-likeness. And oftentimes, the Lord uses what is closest to us to make us like Christ. If you are heavily in your work, that's probably the area the Lord's going to use to grow you to make you more like Christ. If you're all about family and you're heavily invested in your family, that's probably the area that the Lord is going to use to make you more like Christ. If you are in your studies all the time, and this for you is so important, this is probably the area the Lord is going to use to make you more like Christ. Those are probably the areas you will sense some kind of wilderness. And in those moments, as you doubt, as you wonder, as you revisit your heart before the Lord, I want to challenge you to know 
that God is at work, that his goal is for your ultimate good to make you more like Christ, as we heard last week, to make you servants who will become sons and daughters, to grow you in obedience. I want to encourage you all, repent of trying to be your own hero of your own stories and look to Jesus who God has preserved, prepared, and promised to you and I. That's the message today. That as you guys are living in this broken and sin-fallen world, as you groan and as you complain and as you cry out, God hears you. He remembers his covenant in Jesus that he will never leave or forsake you. He sees you. We'll sing in a moment. He sees each tear you cry. He knows your name. He knows. He knows. Trust the process. He has died for your sins. Jesus is our ultimate hero. If you let me be a little cheeky, he's the goat. Hashtag Jesus died for our sins. Hashtag trust the process. Brothers and sisters, friends, I, wanna, I want us to think about our lives. I know a lot of times we think as, as churchgoers we're supposed to check everything at the door and just come in, worship, and then pick up all of our baggage and go back into the world. But I want you guys to think about your lives. Think about your struggles. Think about your doubts. Think about in the moments where you wonder, what is God doing? Is he at work? And I want to give us some time to pray and think about the promise that in Christ that God is making us more like him, that God is redeeming our stories, that he's grafting it into his own, that he has preserved Christ, he has prepared him, and he has promised him to us now. Think about the ways you've trusted in yourself to be your own hero, and I urge you to come to a place of repentance. Aren't you tired of trying to be your own savior Aren't you tired of all the things, all the little pieces you have to work out? Aren't you tired of the sleepless nights, the early mornings, of you just trying to save yourself, your family, your work, your studies? In your diligence, will you prayerfully trust in the Lord who has promised to us a hero in Jesus Christ? Let's, let's spend some time in prayer.